to look this week at several events where he demonstrated his unique authority. And we're going to start off by a passage read by Alexander Scorby. Brother? It's okay. Do I need to just read it, brother? And the same day, when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him, and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose, and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. So this passage continues the account of a very full day in the ministry of Christ. Jesus started the recorded day by casting out a demon and being challenged by the Pharisees. They were threatened by the people who started talking about maybe this Jesus was the promised Messiah. And given that Jesus did not line up with the Pharisees' belief, this was very threatening to them. And we talked about that two, well, two lessons ago, <clears throat> how they challenged him and, and he defended himself very successfully, but it caused a shift in his teaching style. And now he starts teaching in parables. And that day was recorded him pre uh, preaching the parable of the sower and the seed. Now, I believe he set up the following events that day to address the faith of his disciples because it's going to be difficult for them. Now, they've been following the popular religious figure. Now, Jesus is suddenly getting a lot of pushback against him, the start of that. He's changed his teaching style. His disciples are going to be a little concerned. It's, it's not the same as it was yesterday. Something has changed. And I really believe that this next miracle, Jesus put right there, Jesus and God, to increase his disciples' faith at this critical point in Jesus' ministry. So they're already in the boat, because that's where Jesus preached. We talked about that last week. They first dismissed the crowd, and it says, and I had never noticed this before in this reading, there were with him other little ships. Those little ships don't appear later in the story. So you could be very pessimistic and assume they sank in the, in the storm. <laughs> I think it's a bit extreme. Uh, I think the other ship saw the storm coming and said, no, we'll go home now, while the disciples bowled on through. Now, these other ships, they were, I don't think the disciples were split up. I think all the disciples were in one boat. Although the scripture is not clear, I think it's reasonable to assume. And these were, other boats were likely followers or curious. And while Jesus had said, we're going to go to the other side, and the disciples had a reason to try to get there, I don't think the other boats did. And maybe they saw that storm coming and went, nah, no. It ain't, it ain't enough for us to be following him on this kind of day. We're going to go in. The disciples continue onward. Now, let's look at that boat a little bit. This is the Jesus boat. 
It is a boat that was discovered in 1986 uh, in the Sea of Galilee during a time of drought and the levels were low and it was uncovered. Uh, it was the pottery in the boat dated it to about 50 B.C., somewhere between 50 B.C. and 100 A.D. Um, it was 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, very flat bottom so you could come in close to the shore. It had four staggered rowing positions, although the oars were a little different from what we'd look at today. This is a modern reconstruction of it. You'll notice it's, it's decked at the fore and after, and there's four rowing stations, and they're staggered. So on the starboard, it's a little further forward, on the port, a little further back, then another starboard one, then another port one. And the, the, the oars have handles set at 90 degrees, so you're, you're, you're using a different method. You're not facing backwards. You're rowing here and then J-scooping it to get the, because the oar doesn't come out of the water the same way we think of oars. So you'd, you'd feather the oar to come back cleanly and then turn it and push. Um, Jesus would have been sleeping in the stern, which is what the Bible tells us. This boat, boat would have been a little crowded with 13 men in it, but it's, it's doable. It's not an absurd number of men to put in the boat. <clears throat> it had a mast, uh, which uh, is, is stepped right there in the center of the picture and cross-braced. And you've got lines coming down to the, to the uh, stem and stern. So this is the boat we want to think about as we're going through the story. Jesus is asleep at the stern. The disciples try to bull through the storm. And the storm is sloshing water over the side into the boat. So no doubt they're bailing because if water's coming in the boat, you've got to get the water back out of the boat. They don't have a bilge pump. They've got a, you know, a pail and manual operation. <clears throat> they were bailing and rowing for all they were worth, but they were losing the battle. And unlike a modern boat, there's no excess... Uh, Buoyancy, if this thing fills with water, it's going down. And I believe they waited until the last possible second before they bothered their master who's asleep in the stern. They're, they're just gonna, they're gonna do everything they can before they turn to God. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. You know, and <laughs> it's kind of sad because God's not up there, He's right over there. <laughs> but they're gonna do everything they can before. They turn to God. So by the time they actually wake up Jesus, they're at the point of no return. They're in a panic. We, the Bible does not tell us who, who woke him up. Some might guess Peter. I don't know that it matters, but they're in a, they're in a bad emotional place when they finally wake Jesus up. So they have a problem. Now, they believe Jesus would help them. What's their problem? Well, their ship is sinking. Why is their ship sinking? Well, their ship is in deep water. If it was next to the shore, they wouldn't have been worried. And their ship was full of water. That's a bad combination. Okay? Why was their ship full of water? Well, the, the, the water was sloshing in. Why was the water sloshing in? Because there was a storm. <clears throat> now, what could Jesus do to fix this? If he changes any of these situations they're no longer going to be in danger. If they're no longer in deep water, he could move the ship. He could have all the water inside the ship disappear. He could make the water stop sloshing in. He could stop the storm. Consider that at this point, 
What the disciples have seen Jesus do has always been miraculous, but local. So there's a certain expectation going in. We're going to wake Jesus up and he's going to fix this problem. Maybe he'll make all the water leave. Maybe he'll help us bail faster. But what Jesus did, they didn't expect. They were expecting him, I think, to do somewhere down here in the bottom. They didn't expect him to go all the way up to the root cause and fix that. We don't know what they expected, but Jesus stopping the storm was not their expectation. They'd seen miracles before, but they'd all been limited in scope. One person healed or raised. The feeding of the 5,000 hasn't happened yet. One demon cast out at a time. Jesus had great miraculous powers, but they'd only seen them demonstrated right here. And Jesus wakes up and he says to the wind, that's enough. (laughs) Into the water, calm down. And the storm just stops. Now the average thunderstorm releases an amount of energy equal to a 20 kiloton nuclear weapon. Not all at once, but there's that much energy in the system. There's that much going on. And so, now, did did the disciples know it was a 20 kiloton weapon? Certainly not. But they knew what a storm was. And this was a very unlimited miracle. This was the first time they'd seen Jesus speak And a change happened from as far as you could see that way to as far as you could see that way. As far as you could see that way to as far... Everything changed. And I think sometimes we don't appreciate how big a change this was for his disciples. We know about the feeding of the 5,000. They didn't. So this was a, a big surprise to them. This was a big step up. It forced the disciples to reevaluate this man they had followed. And the Bible tells us they feared exceedingly. And they said, what manner of man is this? Now, I imagine they eventually calmed down when he didn't burst into flames or grow another head or glow green. But I'm sure for a moment they were waiting. What's he going to do next? This is another step in the progressive revelation of who Jesus really was. We have to remember, we see the complete revelation because we have the finished Bible. They were living it. And it was a gradual step-by-step revelation. And I think if Jesus was revealed as God on day one, some of his disciples may have just steered clear. They were following a, a man. They were following a prophet They only eventually found out they were following the Son of God. We do the same thing, though. We limit God in our heads. When we have a problem and we ask God to fix our problem, you know, we kind of go to God with a mental menu. Well, you could fix it this way or you could fix it this way. And he often ignores our list and does it another way entirely. Because we're limiting how we see the situation can be fixed. 
God says back in Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Try to get away from mentally limiting God. I'm going to say try because... It's part and parcel of our human nature. We tend to do it. But recognize God is so much bigger, so much wiser, so much greater. Now, don't let them confuse you. You notice I got the title in red. This is my favorite rabbit chasing time. It is fashionable to doubt the miracles of the Bible and to explain them away. And this really started with the higher criticism movement in 17th century Germany. I say Germany because if you know your history, in 17th century there was no Germany. There were about 47 little counties and palinates and everything else. Pardon? Did you say 36? No, I said city states. Some of them, yeah. Um, Just a, a mismanaged collection that had never... Germany was the second to last European country to coalesce into one country. Italy was last. Or I may have that backwards. But what we think of as Germany today didn't exist. But there was a, there was a Germanic people. And there was certainly a commonality of Germanic thought. And if anti-Semitism has ever had a center in Germany, uh, in Europe, it's Germany even before Hitler. The German people had a particular suspicion of the Jews. Not to say it wasn't common everywhere else. In Spain, they were cast out. In France, oh, you had a really ugly situation with their army and some Jewish people. Uh, That was the, I lost the word, started with a P. No, the Dreyfus Affair. Um, No one liked the Jews. And frankly, they were taught not to like the Jews. And so... If we can undermine the Bible, well, that's the story of the Jews. But in the 17th century, it got worse because of a thing called European rationalism. European rationalism, which was a product of the Renaissance, and if you sit in school, everyone will tell you the Renaissance was good. It took Europe out of the Dark Ages. And in many ways, the Renaissance was good. But the idea behind rationalism is human reason can find all truth. All truth. And it's rooted in an atheistic worldview. Now, (laughs) I'm an engineer. My world is rooted in rationalism up to a point. And there's a very important point in there because I recognize rationalism can only go so far. But in an atheistic worldview, miracles are impossible. There is no God, so there are no miracles. So all accounts are misunderstood natural phenomena or lies inserted into the story for punch. That's the viewpoint. So, but, 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 for each German scholar that woke up and started tearing down the Bible, Bultmann, Eichhorn, Graf, Wellhausen, God raised up another scholar, Hodge, Warfield, Machen, Alice, who defended historical accuracy, reliable textual history, and a biblical worldview. So I can tell you, if you are feeling like a scholar and want to go out there and do some research, you will find volumes of argument on either side. 
And you need to decide which side you're on. Because I can tell you this, there's no middle ground. You might think there's a middle ground, and there's a whole lot of churches out there this morning preaching a middle ground. We believe the Bible, but the Genesis account can't be right. So they think there's a middle ground. There's not. There either is a God, and everything he says about the Bible is true, and everything in it happened the way he wrote, or there isn't a God, and it's a bunch of lies. And if you doubt one miracle, you're in that camp. Because there's no middle ground. Now, I also want to talk about that word miracle a little bit. A miracle is not just miraculous. Got to think about that. <laughs> we misuse mirac miraculous as improbable. We talk about a miraculous sports victory. Where, you know... In spite of the odds, the team wins. So the, the ball flying from midcourt and dunking and the last second win, that's not a miracle. That's improbable. A miracle would be if he threw the ball, it magically turned into four balls and all of them went through the basket at once. That's a miracle. The shot from midcourt as the clock is counting down is improbable. And I'm not asking you to change your English because you won't manage. But realize up here there's a difference. It's qualitatively different. The events described as the miracles of Christ are not unlikely. They're impossible. The storm didn't happen to stop when Jesus woke up. It didn't just gradually die down on its own and everything got better. No, Jesus sat up and said, that's enough. And the storm ended. Not coincidence, not improbable, miraculous. And once again, we either accept everything the Bible tells us as authoritative, or we don't. There's no middle ground. All right, we got away from the red text. We can move on. <laughs> Brother, if you would. The Gospel according to St. John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Thank you, brother. There are three passages we're going to look at here. Let me read the middle one. In, out of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and then jumping to 10. Hath in these days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, jumping ahead, and thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands, we got one more passage out of Colossians, brother. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. We have three passages here, all of which, while talking about this and that, talk about the same thing. Jesus Christ, the second figure of the Trinity, the Son of God, created all things and therefore has a unique authority over creation. The storm obeyed his command. The demons obeyed his command. The water later agrees to hold him up. And fish, in a later miracle, submitted to his guidance. As the creator of the universe, he has a unique authority over it. And that time when he was on earth and used that authority is a unique time in the history of the world. Where, where one man, who was also the son of God, had a unique authority over the entire world around him. And make no mistake, the storm came at his command. That's the part we don't think about. This was no accident. Jesus didn't happen to be sleeping when the storm came. Jesus whistled up that storm before he went to sleep. He set it up to reveal another aspect of who he was to the disciples. To increase their faith at a critical time in his ministry where Israel is starting to actively turn against Jesus and therefore against his disciples. This was no accident. God was and is sovereign. Jesus is the visual manifestation of the invisible God. And all the fullness of God dwells in him. In other words, he is God. All things were created by him and for him. Per Hebrews, he he holds all things together by his word. This is direct, continuous authority He doesn't have to do anything special to break the rules. He doesn't need permission from anyone to break the rules. He's the keeper of the rules. So this ending of the storm is just him exercising his authority. Einstein tells us uh, information. Energy cannot be created. It can only be transformed. And that is perfectly true, but God. Jesus took that 20 kilotons of energy and just turned it off. That's what we can't do. That's what we can't explain. Because he stepped outside the laws of nature. The laws of nature. No, 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 no. They're the laws of God, okay? But the laws of nature. The world works in a predictable way because that's the way God set it up. It's a reflection of his lawfulness. Those laws exist because God wants them to. Oh, incidentally, they make our lives a whole lot easier. Can you imagine a world where if I drop this bottle, it may or may not land? But we don't have to look at it. We don't have to think about it. Gravity always works. What if it didn't? How hard a world would that be to live in? Thank you. I'll take a lawful God. They make our lives so much easier. 
When I'm back here on Wednesday night and I make rule games for the kids, I make the rules up. I make the games up. When I want to change the rules, who do I have to get permission from to change the rules? Nobody. I make the rules up. Now, I'm not comparing myself to God. But it's a similar situation. If I want to change the way the kids are playing the game, I just change the rules. Jesus decided the storm was no longer convenient. He changed the rules. Created a loophole. 20 kilotons. Out. Gone. Reset. Move along. No different. It's God's nature. It's God's laws. And he decided that day there'd be an exception. Let's continue the story reading on in Mark, please, brother. Chapter 5. And they came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was there, nigh unto the mountains, a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about two thousand, and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled, and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done. And they come to Jesus, and see him that was possessed with the devil, and had the legion, sitting, and clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil, and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. And when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. The day is still not over. Casting out the demon and, and uh, condemnation by the Pharisees. A long sermon where he introduces parables. The sea and the storm, the crossing over to the Gadarenes. And now that he's over there, he's going to do something else. I don't know what time it is. It's getting late in the day. I want to go to sleep, but no, we've got demons to take care of. When Jesus gets out of the ship in the country of the Gadarenes, what's a Gadarene? A Gadarene is a citizen of Gadara. Gadara is one of the ten cities. You can see it here on the map, over here in the orange area. Gadara. 
It's one of the 10 cities that make up, by, make up the Decapolis. Decapolis, 10 cities. It's a region of Palestine that is controlled like by the Romans, like the rest of Palestine. It has some Jews living there, but it's pretty much gone the way of the Greeks. It's a civilized province where Rome doesn't have any, as much problem with those crazy Jews. They don't, have, they don't care so much for the Jewish religion. They're just pretty much, they've already gone uh, secular. So Jesus crosses from Capernaum over down to, into the region of, the, of Gadara, the Gadarenes. And as soon as he gets out of the ship, this demon-infested man comes and accosts Jesus. And the Bible tells us how this man was possessed by a superhuman spirit. He had enormous strength, probably had some manner of healing. He could not be contained, and he was totally miserable controlled by the demons, crying and screaming and living naked and isolated from society. The demon spots Jesus at a distance and comes running up and bows the knee. The uncontrollable, uncontainable, totally evil demon sees Jesus and enters into a subservient position. Now, not because he wants to worship God, because he recognizes Jesus' authority. And he begs Jesus. He doesn't know, the demon doesn't know why Jesus is there, but he's worried. What the demons do know is there's going to come a day of judgment. And he's worried it might be today. And he says, please don't torment me. The demons know their future. They know what they've earned. They know what their future is. And unlike us, they have no hope of forgiveness. Yay us. I'd rather be on my position than theirs. He wants to know if Jesus is there to torment him, to send him home back to hell which is not as nice a place as it is here. <coughs> and like I said, the, the demons don't know their future, but they know who Jesus is. Even a fallen angel cannot help but bow the knee when Jesus is there. Every knee will bow. The demons know they're going to be sent back to hell shortly. They ask permission to go into the swine first. It's not going to be much of a delay. They go into the swine, they kill the swine, they're going back to hell anyway. And it's not a small herd. 2,000 pigs is a lot of pork on the hoof or, or, or cloven you know, on the trotter. And there are people who look at this and go, how could Jesus have that much disrespect for the money of that poor herder? You're missing the point, guys. Okay. Jesus <coughs> was willing to sacrifice that herd to create a bigger spectacle. Why was Jesus here? Was he, was he here to respect the rights of the landowner? Because well, trust me, if you've got 2,000 pigs, you ain't exactly poor. Okay? You're, you're, you're pretty well off. Those pigs did not belong to the herdsmen. 
Those herdsmen were hired to take care of the pigs of some rich guy over there in Decapolis. Jesus is willing to give the demons permission, and note the demons had to have permission to go into the pigs from God. And he's going to use those demons to accomplish his mission, which is to spread the word. The pigs died so that many could see that Jesus was here. The herdsmen run screaming. Ah! They were probably a little unnerved before because the Sea of Galilee was acting goofy. There's this big storm came up and then just disappeared. Guy comes out of a boat. All the pigs dive into the Sea of Galilee. I don't know. Let's just run. It seems like a good policy. Something's going on, and we don't want to be here. They run into town. They tell people what happened. The people in the town come back. <coughs> and when they come back, they don't even look at Jesus. Because they see crazy man. They see the man who has plagued this part of the coast. Because, trust me, that demon was an inconvenience. The herdsmen would have kept a close eye on where the demon was. Because he could have destroyed any part of their herd. He could have destroyed them. This was a superhumanly powerful crazy person who was unpredictable. This was a very dangerous place in Gadara to be because the demon was around here somewhere. And all the town folk come up <clears throat> to ask what happened to the pigs. Guarantee you the rich man was there or some representatives. And they go to ask about the pigs, but they stop dead because here's crazy man. Here's the demoniac. And he's got clothes on, and he's sitting and eating. Which, by implication, means some of the disciples were wearing less clothes than they were before. <laughs> because I doubt they had spares with them. But that's, while silly, is not the point. The Gadarenes are frightened that Jesus could heal this famously possessed man. So they just ask him to leave. There's too much chaos going on. We don't want you disturbing things. We like things quiet here in the Decapolis. Take that crazy Jewish stuff and go to the other side of the lake, please. But seeds were planted. And remember, this is not Jesus' mission field right here, right now. To the Jews first. But the seeds are planted. Word of this man, Jesus, now spreads throughout this northern part of Decapolis. And God always works from the seed. A former demoniac asked to come. He has no given name in the Bible. <coughs> His identity is not important. His situation was important. Why did he want to come with Jesus? I think he might have been afraid the demon would return. I'd be worried. This guy cast out my demon. How about if I tag along with him in case the demon comes back? Oh, you think? They're waiting for him to go nuclear, uh, you know, postal at any moment. Jesus encourages him to stay. Charges him to spread the word. And he does. And while Jesus, it's interesting, often told the Jews to be silent about what he did for them, he encourages this man to tell all. It's a slightly different situation. Jesus would tell the Jews to keep it quiet, keep it on the down low, so that he wouldn't be swarmed by people looking to be healed. 
He's not going to Decapolis. So let's, let's let word of that spread wide to create fertile ground for the gospel in the future. Okay. Applications. As connecting the role of Jesus <coughs> as creator to his power over nature help you to understand these miracles more fully? Did that help any or is that something you already knew? Since we live in a time where many people are very skeptical of miracles and look to natural explanations to explain the world, should we avoid bringing up miracles as we seek to share the gospel with them? That's a harder question. Anybody want to weigh in on that one? I would say that part of the gospel story, and like Paul, <coughs>